Good morning. Welcome to Highlands Baptist Church. I'm glad to be here with you today. And I'm excited about our study this morning that continues in our participation in the Spirit, our study on sanctification, the doctrine of spiritual growth for the Christian. So if you're here with us this morning, and maybe you're somebody that says, you know, I'm, I don't actually identify as a Christian. I'm not sure that I would uh, call myself that. That's okay, because what you're going to hear today is hope for you as well. Because the same gospel by which the Christian life is based and by which we live is the same gospel that can give you life. The good news of Jesus Christ can give life to you as well, just as it sustains the life of every Christian here today. If you'll take with me um, and open your Bibles to the book of Colossians, the New Testament letter of Paul to the church at Colossae. It's fitting, I think, that we're attacking this text today, uh, here on Mother's Day, because as I think through the letters of Paul and as we study them, they all have a unique tone to them about how Paul is addressing the different churches. And the book of Colossians has a very motherly tone to it, if I could say it that way. Especially when you compare it to, say, the book like uh, Galatians which I think has a, more of a flavor along the lines of, of a father or maybe a parent who is seeing a child who is making some very poor decisions, a very poor way of life. And, and Galatians comes at it attacking this issue of, of the Christian life and of legalism in such a way that Paul gets very aggressive, at, like he's, he's reaching out to grab a child who's just leaning off of the edge of a cliff to save them and rescue them and pull them back. And he's very severe at times. Whereas with the letter to the churches at Colossae and the church of Laodicea, Paul approaches it in a very warm and comforting way, as if this is a, a young child who is maybe just in their junior high years or maybe one who's just ready to go off to college and a mother or father is approaching them and saying, hey, there's some dangers out there that I want you to be aware of, but I want you to be encouraged and strengthened because there's hope. And I want to give you the guidance you need to navigate through the dangers. See the sense and the difference of the tone? Well, let's look at that and let's see you there beginning of Colossians 1. Look with me in chapter 1. We won't cover the entire book, even though it might feel like we need to today. Um, but we're going to focus in on chapters 2 and 3, but just look at chapter 1 with me real quickly. And you'll begin to pick up on this sense, this tone. In verse 24 of chapter 1, Paul writes this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from which, excuse me, from the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. And notice there, he, in verse 28 especially, he says, 
here's my, here's my desire, here's my goal for this letter, here's my desire for all of you is that you will grow up into maturity. So what you're going to see after this is everything that Paul thinks is necessary for us to grow in maturity. So I have here on the screen this idea of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That would be maybe the focus of the entire letter of, of Colossians. But then, as we focus in on Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3, as we see that Jesus is supreme over all things, here in chapters 2 and 3, we'll find that he is sufficient for us as believers. He is sufficient. Now, here's why this is important for us. We all are prone in this process of growing and maturing in Christ to be deceived. We are all prone to be pulled away by things other than Christ, other than the gospel, other than his sufficiency, other than his preeminence, to, to sort of work our own salvation out, to try to figure out how to grow and become full in this life, or to experience the fullness of spirituality. We're prone to deception in our spiritual lives, and, and especially um, self-deception. In fact, many of us are, are self-deceived when it comes to what it means to be in Christ and to grow in Christ. Some of us are easily moved away from the essentials of Jesus Christ, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you want to get um, Pastor Steve and myself fired up sometime, just tell us something like this. Oh yeah, we know the gospel, we heard it a long time ago, and now we need something else. Don't say that to us, because we're going to come back like Paul and say, then, then what you're forgetting is that you still need the gospel. And, and your, your gospel is your only standing, the good news of Jesus Christ, what we're going to unpack from, from chapters 2 and chapter 3. We tend to substitute forms of spiritual life or forms of godliness in place of the real thing. It's our tendency. We're self-deceived. We tend to, to move away from the essential things that are in Christ, and, and we tend to substitute a real spiritual growth, growth for something else. And that takes many many forms. We're going to look at a few of those. In fact, C.S. Lewis talks about that in one of his books. He says, we, we can become infatuated with this idea of Christianity and something else. God and something else. Christ and something else is what we need. And Paul is going to combat that very carefully and helpfully in this letter. There's two sort of theological ideas, too, that we're going to come up against. The idea of legalism and the idea of condemnation. These are the battles of the Christian life where we get, get off track very easily. The idea of our legalism, that we view our spiritual life and our spiritual growth through the lens of our performance. And then we get caught off track by the idea of condemnation where, yes, we, we know that we're a believer, but man, there's just this sin in my life and it's just a cycle, and I just sense sin in my life over and over and over and over again, and I don't feel like there's any freedom. So there's a sense of condemnation that Paul's going to come up against, that don't be captive to either of these. So this is his tone. This is what is driving Paul as he writes to the church at Colossae. And as we read the letter today, and as we explore these chapters, here is the danger. And I'm going to show you the next slide, and then it's going to start to unpack for you some of the things in chapters 2 and 3. But the, sort of the first point I want to have for you today is this. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. The second point is this. Why? Because you need to know who you are in Christ. 
So as you're tracking through, you can even just highlight these in your Bible and underline these points. It's, it's very, very clear what Paul's doing. So there in, in, in chapter 1, verses 21 and 23, he gives this form of encouragement again. And, and he's like, don't shift from the hope of the gospel. Well, why? Because here's what's true about you. Look at these in verse 21. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He has reconciled you through his death. If you are in Christ, you are reconciled. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, here's the caveat, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith. Now, sometimes in, in English you read that phrase and, and it was like, man, is, is Paul like saying that it's possible for us not to continue? There is a sense of warning in that, that, that there is an idea where somebody has heard the gospel and they do not continue in it. There is a sense of that, but, but I think here in the tone of the letter, overall, he's assuming something. In fact, we could translate it this way. Since, indeed, you will continue in the faith. His, his tone here is, one of, is, is of optimism. That you're not going to fall away, that you are going to persevere, that you are going to continue in the faith. And therefore, you are stable and you're steadfast. So don't shift from the hope of the gospel that you heard. That's chapter 1. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, he begins by saying, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and all those at Laodicea, for all who have not seen me face to face. Oh, by the way, did I mention that Paul hasn't even met these people yet? This, this, this church and these churches that are planted here in this area, Paul hasn't even met them. One of the men that he discipled, one of the ones who took the gospel there, has preached the gospel and seen these churches established. And he's writing. Why? Because he's heard of their faith and he's writing to encourage them to continue in it. But he's heard of this danger. So verse 2. I'm writing that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. So how are we going to find encouragement here? How are we going to find encouragement in the gospel? How are we going to stand firm and stable in the gospel together as believers? It's this way. As we are knit together in love in this gospel. Okay, so one of the things, again, that I've heard recently, you know, from some people or maybe just in talk or in a conversation, the idea of, man, you guys sure do talk a lot about unity and love and legalism. Why is that? It's because... Legalism is destructive, and one of the primary ethical uh, comforts of the church and the sustaining graces of the church is that if we dwell together in unity around this gospel, every one of us will find our hearts encouraged, even when an individual one of us is struggling with our faith. But you come together in unity and love, and you begin to see again and anew that the gospel transforms lives, and it's real. Because people's lives are being changed and people are loving others who aren't like them. And this is supernatural. So Paul says this, be encouraged by being knit together in love so that you can reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is what? Christ. Christ. See, if there's any mystery to be discovered... If there's any knowledge to be pursued in the Christian life that, that you're missing, it's this, is that you need to have a greater understanding of who Christ is 
and what he has done for you at the cross. And lo and behold, what happens? Paul begins to unpack exactly that. But before he does, he gives a warning, verse 4 in chapter 2. I say this so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Wow. In Christ is the fullness of all knowledge. In Christ is the fullness of all wisdom. In Christ is the riches of everything that you need in your life. Are you starting to see why we talk about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ? In fact, as I teach this to teens sometimes, I talk about the, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, and he is supreme, and I ask him, what do you think of when you think of supreme? And lo and behold, most of the time they say, pizza! And why is it called the supreme pizza? Because you throw everything on it, and it's the supreme So a shorthand way of saying that Jesus is supreme is just say that Jesus is everything. In him is everything. You have no need to look anywhere else. In him you will find everything that you need. So don't be deluded even when people come to you with plausible arguments. Now, what is Paul admitting when he says this? He admits that there are some arguments that sound really good to our ears. And it sounds really good. It makes sense at a logical level. Now before some of you jump to the idea, and we'll see this in verse 8 as well, that that therefore Paul is preaching an anti-intellectualism or an anti-rationalism or that he's calling us to be just simply people of pure faith and not reason. That's not all what he's saying. In fact, If you want to take that argument, you have to wrestle with this text because he's laying out a very cognitive, rational, um, scientific argument for why he's saying what he's saying. In fact, you go back to chapter 1, and he, he starts by saying that Christ is the creator, so therefore everything has been created by him and for him and through him and by him all things consist. And if he wasn't holding all things together, everything would just kind of explode and deteriorate, including you. So you must understand that he is supreme. But don't be deluded with plausible arguments. So verse 6-7. Therefore, here's the conclusion, therefore, just as you received him. Well, how did we receive Christ? The Lord. Christ as the Lord. So through faith, we have received him. We have believed him and we have begun to obey him. And what's the first step of faith? What is the first reflection of faith for a Christian, it is when we repent and believe as we obey the command of Christ. So he says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, so walk in him. Continue to believe. Continue to obey. Why? Because you, again, look at these descriptors, because you are rooted in him. You are built up in him. You are established in the faith. In what faith? The faith in him. Just as you were taught. And here's the result. As we understand that we are walking with him by faith, and we are continually shaping our lives in obedience to his command, where's this coming from? It's coming from our our rootedness in Christ. So, So he is our life source. The imagery. I love it. Paul mixes all kinds of metaphors in these texts. So he's talking about this tree of this plant that is rooted in the life source of Christ. Then he moves to the being built up. It's like a building 
that we are part of starts to make us think about the nature of the church. So we're rooted in Christ and we're built up in the church together. We're established in this faith so that when the storms and the waves come, using a language maybe of Matthew 7 of Jesus there, we are not shaken. Why? Because our foundation is Christ. So don't be deluded with fine-sounding, plausible arguments. Then he unpacks it, though. Here's why. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Oops. Slide's gone here. Okay. Don't be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Why? Because these are according to what? Human tradition. And they're according to what? The elemental spirits, the the spiritual powers or the, the spiritual influences of a life that are present in the world. These are according to everything else that is outside of Christ. So don't be taken captive by these. Don't be taken captive by, and I have the word up here on the screen in quotes, religion. Because sometimes when we see the word philosophy, and again, we think, oh, he's anti-intellectual, it means we shouldn't study, we shouldn't think. No, that's not what he's saying. Probably the idea of philosophy is more like we would use the word religion. It's like we have five, six, maybe seven kind of world religions that dominate the, 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 um, the scenery of our world today. Don't be taken captive by these religions that take us away from Christ. They are, they are full of empty deceit. And here's his logic, verse 9. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is the incarnation. This is the, the mystery of the incarnation. Where's the mystery? Well, the mystery is this, is that this God, who is sovereign and creator of all things, he's the supreme one, he has entered creation, and he has come down to us in the flesh. Verse 10. Now here is an amazing statement. And you have been filled in him. Are you, are you seeing just the phenomenal work of Christ? The fullness of deity dwells in Christ bodily. And as we are connected to Christ, we are full. That can only mean one thing. That in some very real sense, we as Christians are actively participating in the nature of the Godhead. We have been given something that is outside of us. We have been been given a fullness that is not natural to us. We have been given a fullness, a sufficiency that we can never earn in ourselves. This doesn't mean that we're gods. But it does mean that we are being renewed as God intended. It does mean that we have God dwelling in us, reshaping our lives. It does mean that we lack nothing for life and for spiritual growth. Why? Because we're full. We sing this song. In fact, I think we're going to sing it today at the end. We are complete in Christ. 
This is the idea. We are complete in Christ. We are full in Him. <laughs> and what is it? who is the head of all rule and authority? He's over it. So if there's any other power that is trying to subject us to its authority, uh, Paul says to us that we are in Christ and we are full in Christ. Therefore, we are actually above, superior to all this rule and authority in Christ. It has no power over us. He continues to unpack how this happens. Verse 11. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. I just have here, this was a spiritual circumcision. This is the circumcision that Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah were talking about, that, that Jesus was talking about where we needed our hearts circumcised. We needed our hearts of stone cut out and a heart of flesh given to us. We needed a new heart. And this is how it happened. In him. Divinely. And how did it happen? By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Which means, Paul is using this metaphor to basically say, through the death of Christ, as Christ is crucified on the cross, his body, his physical body is stripped. It is killed. It is taken away. And with it, we have been spiritually circumcised and given new life in Christ. It goes on in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, so we died with Christ. Circumcision of Christ is a shorthand for saying we died with Christ. Verse 12, we've been buried with him in baptism, in which then you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Man. Again, we're coming back to this idea of the union with Christ. We are in Christ. We're full in Christ. We've died with Christ. The, the, the power of sin, because Christ has died and we've been united with him, the power of sin has been destroyed. We've been buried with him in the tomb and we are now raised to new life. How? By the powerful working of Christ. Question. What have we done? What have we done? We've believed. And Christ has given us his fullness. And then he's going to unpack the blessings here. Look, verse 13, and you, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. You who were dead. You who were dead. God made you alive. With Christ. And here's the blessings. We talked about legalism. We talked about condemnation. And these are going to come out right here. About how he's, he has forgiven us all our trespasses. He's canceled the record of death that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now here, the language switches from the perspective of the son to the father. God made us alive together with him. Having forgiven our trespasses. Now, since the language and the metaphor is is old for us. It's, it's like this. We remember 
when Jesus is nailed to the cross and, and Pilate puts on there this, this notice, right? Remember the notice that says, he is the king of the Jews. And the Pharisees responded, and they're like, no, no, don't say that he is the king of Jews, but rather say that he said that he is the king of Jews, right? And so what was that document that was posted there? The document that was posted there was supposed to be a notice to all who would walk by and see what the crime was of this individual, why he's being crucified. So that's why the Pharisees were so belligerent about this. Pilate actually twisted it and said, no, I'm, I'm going to have the last word here. I'm actually going to make you guys a mockery for crucifying this man because apparently he is your king and, and Caesar's not. And, and you're, they get up in arms about this. Well, here's the imagery that, that Paul uses. He's not talking about this document that was posted above the head of Jesus Christ on the cross it looks like he's actually talking about Christ himself. Look at it. This is how God, the Father, cancels our sin, the record of debt that stood against us with its demands. Here's how he did it. He nailed it to the cross. How did he do that? He nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. And on him... All of our sin is laid. And as Christ dies on the cross, he is our sign. He is our IOU. He is in our place for our sin. And God takes all of our guilt, all of our sin, and he's able to forgive it because it's bound up in the death of Christ, and as Christ is crucified and his body is stripped naked and bare, nailed to the cross, we find freedom and forgiveness and grace and hope. And then verse 15. Paul just tacks this on there like we're supposed to understand exactly what he means. And he says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Sometimes we just read over that like, wow, it's a big deal. I have no idea what that means. It's phenomenal. Paul is stating for us and giving us insight into the spiritual realm that, that at the cross, as Jesus dies and then he rises from the dead through the power of God, all of the powers of spiritual darkness, whether we've created them ourselves, our own sinful flesh, Satan and his demons, the, 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 the power of sin, the presence of sin, it's destroyed. Its power is disarmed. It's taken away. This is, like, this is like the emperor has no clothes moment. When the spiritual powers think that, oh, look, see, we, we're victorious. See, Christ is going to the cross. Yes, we're killing God. Yes, Jesus is defeated, and all of his followers are just going to scatter and be destroyed. But here, here's the great comedy or the great turn in the entire story of history that in the defeat of Christ from the perspective of Satan and all that would follow him, the perspective of sin, here's the great reversal. In his defeat, it's actually a victory. And in what they thought was their victory is actually their defeat. So that the text says that God brings them and disarms them and he brings them out into open shame. It's like there's this victory march and he's marching them in front of all creation. Everyone to see, look, Satan, sin, you have no power over my people. You think you do, but yet you have no clothes. 
let the world laugh at you. Just as you tried to mock me on the cross in my nakedness and the shame and everything they tried to do to me, I'm going to lead you as my captives, as the victor over all, and let the world laugh because you have no power. And in this, Jesus calls all to believe. Verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Okay, now we're starting to get into the the core of what Paul wants to get at. Let no one pass judgment on you. In what? In questions of food and drink. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are the shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. The substance belongs to Christ. Listen, brothers and sisters, if, there's, if we could frame these warnings this way, the first one, don't be taken captive, and then don't let anybody pass judgment on you. Here's, here's what's at stake. There's only true life. There's only true spiritual life in Christ. And there's only true spiritual growth true spiritual advancement in Christ. Anything outside of Christ is worthless. It's vain. It's empty. So maybe to illustrate this a little bit, um, on Wednesday night we were sitting out here with some of the junior high boys, I think, well, actually the high school and junior high boys talking about the lesson. And um, Ethan was doing a great job leading the discussion. We were all paying attention very, very well. And all of a sudden we saw this hawk fly overhead. From the light pole in the parking lot, and land on the the peak of the church. But before he landed, what we saw was a helpless little baby rabbit in its clutches. And some of you say, praise Jesus. (laughs) They have inhabited our land. More hawks, please. But we're talking about Matthew 7, and it was a fitting illustration how Jesus says there's going to be false teachers who rise up among you and they're going to be like wolves in sheep's clothing. So the question is, what's the intent of a wolf who's dressed like a sheep? To devour. To destroy. That hawk, yeah, he wasn't dressed like a rabbit, but man, he did want to devour and destroy. Don't be taken captive. This. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you, for the true substance belongs only to Christ. Don't let anyone disqualify you, verses 18 to 23. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about vision, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. Why? What are all these things? These, these things may not be inherently bad in themselves, but what have they done? What have these people done? They have substituted the thing or the spiritual discipline or the spiritual ritual or the spiritual experience for Christ himself. He says, verse 17, these are a shadow of things to come. Yeah, these celebrations of Sabbath, food and drink, these are, these are good things, but they're, but they're simply a shadow. They're, they're not the real thing. They're, the substance belongs to Christ himself. So I don't know when it was, but there was this advertisement for Coke, I think. It was like, the real thing, baby. 
And some of you, your taste buds have been trained so well, you've eaten sugar your whole life, that when you get a taste of these sugar substitutes, you just want to vomit. And would we be like this? That when we get a taste of something that's not Christ, when, when somebody, even from within our own midst, starts to sort of go down a path or maybe wants to lead somebody else down a path that's, that really is not according to Christ, it's according to something else, it's according to human tradition or to a spiritual experience that, that really is taking the focus and distraction, distracting us away from Christ to something else. And would we be able to taste that, sense that, not be taken captive by it and not allow them to hold us in judgment or to disqualify us because we are not necessarily measuring up to their idea of the spiritual life. Man, brothers and sisters, this is a dangerous thing. This is the area that I believe we are most self-deceived in because we are so good at creating systems to give ourselves a sense of godliness, a sense of spiritual growth, a sense of spiritual life when really it has nothing but what he says here. A form. A form of self-made religion. Verse 23. Verse 18. Go back there. Because here's what's really going on in the minds of these people. Whether we're self-deceived or it's somebody else coming in. Here's the issue. They're puffed up. And get this, without reason. Without reason. They're actually not reasoning well. They are not thinking properly about Christ and the gospel and who they are. And worse than that, they are not, verse 19, they are not holding fast to the head, who is Christ. Because it's only from whom from him, verse 19, that the whole body is nourished. And that the whole body is knit together. And that the whole body grows with a growth that is from God. It's only as we hold fast to Christ. So, brothers and sisters, if, if this week, if you could just get one thought stuck in your head, hold fast to Christ. If there's something that's taking you away from Christ, and your union, your connection with him, that you have died with him, and the power of sin holds no sway over you any longer, that, that you were buried with him, you've been immersed in the life of Christ and the life of the church through baptism, and then you've been resurrected with Christ to live a new life, and all of this depends not on you but on Christ. Hold fast to Christ. He goes on and he explains verse 20. Again, he comes back to our union with Christ. He reasons with us. He logically reasons with us. See, if with Christ you died to these elemental spirits, why? Why? As if you're still alive to them in the world, do you submit to these regulations? Why, why do you do it? Why do you seek to have a sort of a, a facade of spiritual life? Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. And you can just sense the sarcasm in his voice or his pen as he writes He's, all he's doing is merely echoing what Jesus has already said. Brothers and sisters, it's not what's outside the body that comes into the body that defiles a person, but it's what's in the heart that comes out of the heart that defiles a person. 
from its, within the heart. This is why we need a new heart. This is why we need a circumcised heart. This is why we need to be united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, because we need a new life totally, not just simply changing our practices and our forms, but we need to be changed and transformed from the inside out where our desires, our minds, our affections are transformed. Because the condemnation in verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. Yeah, they look good. You can look really good. They have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severe treatment to the body. But look at this. Here's the mic drop bombshell of Paul. These have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. End of story. Now, brothers and sisters, again, it's not that Paul is saying, hey, you don't need to read the scriptures, you don't need to pray, you don't need to have good spiritual disciplines, you don't need to obey the laws of Christ. But what he's saying is, don't substitute spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices for Christ himself. If you're not connected with Christ, if you're not living life through Christ and understanding that your sins are forgiven, you've been freed from the power of sin, and you're supposed to live a new life through the power of Christ, if you're not there, then you will never experience the true growth in Christ that he wants you to have. In fact, here's the result. The result of all these things is really a sense of condemnation more and more in our lives. We're overwhelmed by condemnation. Why? Because we can never get out of this cycle of sin ourselves. And the more we heap on ritual and the more we heap on disciplines or looking for another spiritual experience, the more we find those empty and vain and powerless to truly deliver us from sin and for us to experience true growth in Christ. So this past week I was actually reading with some people here in the church and I came across this quote again from a book called Living the Cross-Centered Life, and I give it to you because it's been a help to me. And this is exactly what Paul's saying. Don't buy the lie that cultivating condemnation and wallowing in your shame is somehow pleasing to God. Or that constant low-grade guilt will somehow promote holiness and spiritual maturity in your life. See, that's what these guys want to do. They're, they're trying to heap it on and say, look, you're lacking something. You're not really sensing the guilt of your sin enough, so you really need to you know, buckle down and, and do works of penance and really you know, you know, treat the body harshly so you can bring about this spiritual growth. All that does is bring about more guilt. And yeah, it might bring about a sense of spirituality for a time, but ultimately it's empty. But rather, what do we need? It's just the opposite. God is glorified when we believe with all of our hearts, that those who trust in Christ can never be condemned. Do you believe that? All who trust in Christ can never be condemned. It's only when we receive his free gift of grace and live in the good of total forgiveness that we are able to turn from old, sinful ways of living and walk in grace-motivated obedience. See, and this is what Paul is trying to free us from. It's trying to free us from the law of legalism and the law of condemnation that we so easily heap on ourselves in our Christian lives. Which brings us to chapter 3. And here's kind of the outline. Don't be deceived, chapter 2. Know who you are in Christ. 
all of Paul's responses to all the things that could deceive us and then live who you are in Christ. Now, if you're watching the time, you know that I can't go through chapter 3 like I did chapter 2. So, here's the reality. These four boxes. Live who you are in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, is this true about you? That implies the question. Have you been raised with Christ? And since you've been raised with Christ, what's your response? Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, where he is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, your affections on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. That is, things that are earthly and sensual and of the flesh. You have new life. Look at it. Verse 3, for you have died. Died to what? You've died to sin. And your life now, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life, brother and sister, is wrapped up with Christ. All that is true of Christ in our spiritual experience is true for us. Sin is dead. We are alive. Verse 4, So when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So just think through the logic. Paul's like, if you are raised with Christ, then seek things above and set your minds on things that are above. Why? Because your life is not, it doesn't consist of, of the things of this earth anymore the base elemental principles of this world, the, the things of sin, the things of the flesh. Rather, you've been given new life, life in Christ, life in the Spirit. Your life is wrapped up with Christ and God, and when he returns someday, he's going to reveal all the glories of your new life that you have in Christ. We call this glorification. So in the meantime, the rest of chapter 3 then unpacks this. From verse 5 all the way down, in fact, really to the end of the letter, This is what it means for you then to put to death sinful practices. Just like Christ was put to death and we were circumcised with him spiritually, we have new life. So we're to put on, put on Christ. Why? Because Christ is our life. Christ is our life. Don't be deceived. Know who you are in Christ and live who you are in Christ. This week, if you're looking for some just brief takeaways, I encourage you to go back through these chapters and consider your identity and give thanks. Man, consider who you are in Christ and just overflow with thanksgiving to your God. Consider your sin. Yeah. Not so you can be condemned by it any longer, but so that you can repent and rejoice in the forgiveness of God once again and move forward. Consider your future. Or just consider your life that you have in Christ and begin to live it out now. What does that look like? It looks like the fruit of the Spirit. It looks like Christ. Consider all that you have in Christ and live for Him.